I want to show you a couple of Bibles. This is the first Bible that I ever owned. It's a, child, a children's Bible that I got when I was five or six. And you can't tell now, but these used to be all different colors. And I read this Bible from the age of six until I was nine. And it was by reading this Bible that I came to faith. Uh, it was me, the Word of God, somewhat translated for children, and the Holy Spirit. And it's through reading this, I was convinced that this was God's truth. I spent most of my time in the Old Testament pages. And uh, I kind of wore, the, I actually literally wore the cover off. You can see I wrote my name on there, kind of. So this is a very special book to me, my very first Bible, the Bible that God used to bring me to faith. And so ever since I was about six years old, I've believed the Word of God. I've believed it to be true. I've believed it to be real. When I was nine years old, I received this Bible, and I read this Bible from the time I was nine all the way through to the end of high school. And I still remember... I spent so much time in the book of Matthew for some reason in this Bible, uh, right up until I got into high school. I just went over and over the book of Matthew. And again, when I was reading this book, I was absolutely convinced of the veracity of Scripture. I was absolutely certain that everything written by God's servants in the Bible was true, and not just the words of his servants, but the words of God himself. Then when I was studying my PhD, I had uh, comprehensive exams. And I had three comprehensive exams. For each one, I had one month for each, and they were three consecutive months. And for each exam, I had to read 15 books. So that's 15 books a month for three months. And at the end of the time, I'd be uh, examined on what I read. And one of my comprehensive exams was, is the Bible historically reliable? And there are two major positions in the academy. Those who say, yes, everything that's written in the Bible is true. It's history. Those are what you call the maximalists. And then there's another very well-respected in the academy, anyway, a group of scholars who say, no, it's not historical fact. It's, It's an important book. It's important literature. It's formed the worldview of countless millions of people, but it doesn't report history. Those are called the minimalists. And so I had to read half of the books by maximalists, half the books by minimalists, and sort of on a spectrum in between. And I had to defend where I stood on this continuum. Was I a maximalist, that is, that the Bible was true, or was I a minimalist? And so obviously, as hopefully you'll know where I stood on that continuum, am I a maximalist or a minimalist? I'm a maximalist. I, I believe the Word of God. I believe it's true. I've believed it since I was six years old. But then something strange happened last month. I actually stood before Jeroboam's altar and I had a moment where I actually thought to myself, I cannot believe it. It's true. I I mean, there's no debating it at that point. You're standing there, I'm touching the rocks. In 1 Kings 12, it says that Jeroboam built an altar and I read about it from the time I was six years old but there I was finally standing there. Or, or again, when I'm standing at Golgotha, at the hill that Jesus was crucified on. There it is. I said, wow, it's a real place. So here I am, a man who has believed in the veracity of the Word of God for uh, my whole life, basically. That when I came face to face with the the, the substantial reality of the things that I've always said were true, something happened in me. And then I was reminded as I was processing everything that I was going through, whether I was in the Garden of Gethsemane or whether I was in Caiaphas's house and that, that dungeon that Jesus had been in the night before he was crucified or as on the very pavement where Pilate had, had declared that he was to be crucified or as at Jeroboam's altar, I was on the Sea of Galilee. Didn't matter where I was, at every place, I had to come face to face with the reality that, wow, I, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Now I see with my own eyes. Every one of us who calls Jesus Christ our Savior, we believe in the gospel. Uh, we all know it to be true, 
And yet, I wonder if you, like me, have somewhere inside of you just this very well-protected, this very well-camouflaged, this very well-hidden little, little place of unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. We all know the gospel. Hopefully, if you've been in this church for any time at all, hopefully you've heard the gospel. You, you know what the gospel is. But you know, we have to remember the gospel day by day. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves day by day, moment by moment. And every time we preach the gospel to ourselves, uh, we have to be like I was standing at Jeroboam's altar or wherever I was in Israel and say, wow, there it is. It's real. It's true. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves. This is really important because today's message, I'm not going to give you really any new information uh, because today's message is do you know what the gospel of God is? But what I want to challenge us with as we go over hopefully very familiar uh, territory, where I, I want to challenge you is I hope that you believe. But do you remember what you believe day by day? Do you, do you live out of that belief? Do you challenge to, to expose? Do you, do you bring to light those corners and crevices in your heart where there's still unbelief? Uh, do, you, do you preach the gospel to yourself? How, are you reminding yourself of the very salvation that you have put your faith and your hope in so that on the day of trial, on the day of, of temptation, on the day of difficulty, you will stand firm and maybe even in that moment, you'll say, I believe, oh God, now help my unbelief. Perhaps you, like me, have believed since you were six years old. Maybe you have a stack of Bibles that mean something to you. But now, let us take a look at the gospel of God and ask ourselves seriously the question in a very deep way. Not in a superficial way, but in a very deep way, a penetrating way. Do we know, not just intellectually assent to but do we know the gospel of God open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 we are beginning our sermon series through the book of Romans this is a great mountain that every church and every Christian must climb the book of Romans so as you're opening your your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 1 would you please stand I'm going to read the first seven verses. Last week we spent all of our time in verse one. Today we're going to look mostly at verses two through six. This is the word of God. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, even you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word of God. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that you have revealed to us, at least in part, your gospel. 
And now I pray that you would reveal further to us, uh, that you would help us to expose the parts of ourselves that don't yet believe fully in the gospel of your salvation. And where we do believe, help us to remember the things that we do believe and we have affirmed, uh, the very hope in which we have put our trust and our confidence and our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ who died once for sin and was raised on the third day ascended into heaven will return for us, his church. I pray that you would speak through me, minister by your spirit according to your word to this church. I ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. As we said last week, this, these seven verses are, are really the introduction to the book of Romans, and so it's really easy to just gloss over them quickly to get to the actual meaty stuff, to get, to get where it really counts. And yet, Paul has just packed so much into these first seven chapters that I, I who like to go over the Scripture quite quickly, I like to take big chunks, I was forced to just look at one verse yesterday. Uh, or last week. So last week, we, we showed you how this introduction could be simplified with just as verses 1 and 7. It's from Paul, to, that's verse 1, to the, the saints who are in Rome, that's verse 7. And then tucked in the middle there, we, Paul adds all this other information. For the second part of verse 1, he wants us to know who he understands himself to be. So we went over last week. And then for verses 2 through 6, He wants to give us a little foretaste of what he's going to develop in the book of Romans. This is what Paul understood his message to be. He had something to say. And and he can't even wait to get into the letter to tell us what it is he wants to tell us. He says, I have something so good, so massive, so life-changing that I I just want to tell you about it in the introduction. And this is the longest of Paul's introductions And the reason is exactly that. He wants to tell us what he's going to tell us. Last week we saw that Paul understood that he was a slave. Uh, He was an apostle and he was a missionary. And so we have to understand ourselves as, as slaves. We have to understand our function in the local church. We're not apostles, but we have a function in the church. And we are all on mission just as... Christ was on mission and Paul was on mission and the church has always been on mission. We better be on mission for God. This week, though, we're going to look at what Paul understood his message to be. And Paul identifies his message with this shorthand at the end of verse 1. Take a look at it. He was set apart. That's the missionary part. I've been set apart. I'm a missionary. Why? With a message. What's the message? The gospel of God. The gospel of God. Now, in verses 2 through 6, Paul is going to give us three very complementary, almost overlapping aspects to what he understands the gospel of God to be. The gospel of God, number one, was promised beforehand in the Scriptures. That is, in the Old Testament. That's verse 2. Number two, the gospel of God concerns God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's verses three and four. And number three, the gospel of God will result in the obedience of faith. That's verses five and six. So what we're going to do this morning is just look at those three assertions about what the gospel of God is. The gospel of God was promised in the Old Testament. The gospel of God is about Jesus Christ. And the gospel of God is to bring about, it's going to result in Something that Paul calls the obedience of faith. And so when we're asking ourselves the question, do we know what the gospel of God is, we have to be familiar with these three aspects of the gospel. Let's take a look at them in order. Number one, the gospel of God was promised by the Old Testament. I hope by now in your life, if not before uh, you were a part of this church since you've been a part of this church, that you know that the gospel was proclaimed and promised by God through the pages of the Old Testament. There was an ancient heretic by the name of Marcion who said, we don't need the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. They're two totally different gods. 
The God of the Old Testament is mean. He's vindictive. He's angry. He's wrathful. And the God of the New Testament, according to the heretic, this is not my preaching, is, is kind and gentle and loving. The Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, revealed to us in the New Testament, according to Marcion, was not the God of the Old Testament. That Jesus came to correct the false understanding of who God was. That is first-class heresy. But we're seeing a resurgence of it in evangelicalism in North America. I don't know if you're, you're familiar with this, but there is a trend that started in the United States just last year called unhitching ourselves from the Old Testament. We don't need the Old Testament. The Old Testament has nothing to tell us about the gospel. The Old Testament is just this very unfortunate prologue to the good stuff, which is the New Testament. Well, I hope that we would see that that's ludicrous, that's, that, that's ridiculous, it's evil to say such things. In fact, it's much more accurate to say that the gospel was presented by God through his people and written down in the pages of the Old Testament, and the New Testament is an appendix to that. And I say that with all seriousness. The New Testament is just making clear what was promised but was maybe not as clear in the Old Testament. So it's very important to note that the gospel of God was anticipated, promised even, by God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now when Paul says the Holy Scriptures, the only Holy Scriptures at the time that he wrote the book of Romans is the Old Testament, or you might call it the Hebrew Bible. This means that whatever the gospel of God is, however we're going to answer the question, do you know what the gospel of God is, it better include the Old Testament. It better include this understanding that whatever the gospel of God is, it is not something altogether different than the Old Testament. And in fact, I would plead with this church, I would plead with you and any Christian who would listen, that if you do not yet know the gospel from the Old Testament, there is so much more of the gospel for you yet to discover. Because the gospel, though revealed plainly in the New Testament, will be flat without depth if it is understood apart from the Old Testament. So important to see. So how then can we discover what the gospel of God is? One answer is to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or to read Paul's epistles, or to read the other uh, letters in the Bible, in the New Testament. But one of the ways, and a really exciting way to answer the question, what is the gospel of God, is by asking ourselves, what does the Old Testament promise? And if you read the Old Testament that way, what is this driving toward? What, what is this history and this scripture trying to promise us? The answer to that question, without even ever needing to read the New Testament, is that's the gospel of God. The gospel of God is the very thing that the Old Testament anticipates and promise, promises. Therefore, the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, is Christian Scripture. It anticipates the gospel. And therefore, before we move on to the second thing, the right understanding of the Old Testament. Remember, the Bible has been used for all kinds of uh, twisted means and ways and purposes. People will use the Bible to twist it to their own advantage. How, do you, how can you decide the difference between a good reading and a bad reading of the Bible? How can you decide between a good reading and a bad reading of the Old Testament? Well, the way that you can tell the difference between a good reading and a bad reading of the Old Testament is is the reading of the Old Testament and the explanation of the Old Testament answering the question of what the gospel promises? The right understanding of any Old Testament passage must discover how it sheds light on the gospel. And therefore, the Old Testament is not like Aesop's fables. It is not a collection of morality tales. The, the Old Testament primarily was not written to tell us how to live a good life by following the examples of the men and women in the Old Testament. In fact, we see the failure of God's people in the Old Testament and the grace of God in the Old Testament, the promise of justice, and on the other side of justice and judgment, the promise of grace and salvation. That's the right reading of the Old Testament. The only hero in the Old Testament is God. Everyone else has failed. That's all we can say about that. But 
really important that at the beginning of the book of Romans, Paul asserts for us, you want to understand the gospel? Get to know the gospel through the Hebrew Bible. Number two, the gospel of God concerns God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In verses three and four, if, if you're not looking for it, you might miss it, but I want you to notice the envelope structure here. Just take a look here. So we're in verse three, and we're gonna go down to verse four. Now, the very first three words of verse three, concerning his son, so concerning, that is the gospel is concerning his son. That is, the gospel is about God's son. Now skip down to the end of verse four. Jesus Christ, our Lord. You could take out everything in between and it would make sense. That he, Paul was set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel of God is about his son and his son is Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see that? Uh, these three verses, it's an envelope. The, the very beginning and the very end are saying the same thing. The gospel is about God's son. Who is God's son? God's son is the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means that everything in the middle is gonna help us to understand well, who's God's son who is the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the very beginning, we see that God's Son is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul is identifying a historical man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, lived in Capernaum, died in Jerusalem, is God's Son. That's the first thing that we have to understand that Paul is saying about the gospel. It's something to do with that historical man who is also the eternal Son of God. Now, in between that envelope, he's going to give us a little more information about who God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is. Uh, number one, verse three, who was descended from David according to the flesh. And number two, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So this envelope structure then just formally, structurally, focuses our attention on these middle two assertions. You want to understand the gospel? You need to know that these two things about the Lord Jesus Christ. So, number one, Jesus was descended from David. And number two, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. So we're going to look at those two things. I am sure that many, many Christians could formulate a true statement about the gospel and never talk about David. It's not that they're wrong about the gospel, but it does mean that their conception, their understanding of the gospel is incomplete. So hear me, I'm not saying in error. If you, if you can formulate the gospel without talking about David, you, you could be absolutely accurate, but you won't be complete in your understanding of the gospel. So the very first thing that we need to understand about the gospel is that Jesus was descended from David. Why is it so important to affirm in our summary of the gospel that Jesus was descended from David? This goes back to our previous statement about the gospel of God in the Old Testament, that the gospel of God was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. That is in the Old Testament. Well, the Old Testament is is focused around the center of the Old Testament is David. We talked about that when we talked about the rise of David. And, and there are certain promises about David in the Old Testament that to Paul's understanding of the gospel are core to what the gospel of God is. I'll just remind you what we went over in our, in our sermon series about the rise of David. God promised kings to, to several people in the Old Testament. When, when God decided he was going to save for himself a people, the way in which he decided to save people was through the kingship of a righteous man who would enforce God's law, who would reign in justice and in righteousness. And so God promised kings to Abraham and to Sarah, to Jacob, and to Judah. And, and throughout Genesis, Genesis 17, 6, 17, 16, 35, 11, 49, 8 to 10. Don't worry about that, but I just wanted to show you, like this is right out of Genesis. God is promising to send a king into the world. And, and this king is going to stop the rebellion of humanity against God. Ultimately, these promises of kingship are fulfilled by David and his sons. Right? David is, is of Bethlehem of Judah. 
he is the promise of this king born to the family of Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, and Judah from the tribe of Judah. David and his sons fulfill that promise, but now God gets a little bit more specific. And to David, God promises an eternal kingdom and a son who would reign forever. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 13 and verse 16, God through the prophet says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me and your throne shall be established forever. What we need to recall always when we're thinking about the gospel is the gospel is not just about a transaction of sin and righteousness, though it is that. The gospel is about us giving our sin to Christ, Christ giving his righteousness to us, and the promise of eternal life, the removal of guilt and all of that. But more foundational than that, because that's just something that happens to give us entrance into the more foundational point of the gospel is this. Is that even though humanity rebelled against God, we did not want to live in God's kingdom. God said, I'm going to establish my kingdom in justice and righteousness. And this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it through the family of Abraham. In fact, I'm going to do it through the family of Jacob. Yeah, in fact, through the family of Judah. And David of Judah is the family in which God is going to establish an eternal kingdom. So the promise of the gospel is that God is going to establish an eternal kingdom that is characterized by justice and righteousness. And the king who sits on the throne of David will not put up with sin and transgression. That's where the whole transaction of sin comes in. He has to deal with our sins so that we can come into his kingdom. The only way to come into his kingdom is if somehow he expunges the sin from us so that we can live in justice and righteousness in the kingdom that God has promised. So Paul here is saying, look, the kingdom of God is surely going to be established through his son, through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a son of David, who will bring the promise to David to reality. Now this is an audacious promise. And it becomes the theological foundation for all of the hope in the Old Testament. And it's confirmed over and over again by the prophets. When, when the Assyrians came in and devastated the northern tribes, the promise to David still stood. God was going to establish a kingdom. And when Babylon came in and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple of God, and there was only 4,000 people left in David's kingdom. 4,000. The promise of an eternal kingdom of justice and righteousness still stood, even though for almost 600 years, where is that kingdom? And that's when Paul is writing now, 600 years almost after the time that the Davidic kingdom was destroyed. And now Paul comes along and he says, listen, the descendant of David is here to reestablish the kingdom that had been broken down. This is good news. We are going to live forever in a kingdom and the, a son of David will be our king. Now, if, if that wasn't enough, according to the Old Testament, the Davidic king of the Jews is the rightful king of the nations. I cannot emphasize enough how important Psalm 2 is to a right understanding of the gospel. Just listen to verses 7 through 9. This is all about the Davidic king. And this psalm would be read whenever the Davidic king was uh, crowned in Jerusalem. And the Davidic king at his coronation would read these words. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There's so much that could be said about this, but I just want to focus in on verse 8. After declaring that the Davidic king has become the very Son of God. 
God says to the Davidic king, ask me of anything. In fact, this is what I promised to give you. The nations as your heritage. In fact, I'm going to give you the ends of the earth to be your possession. When Pilate put the decree over the head of Jesus on the cross when he hung there dying, do you know what it said? The king of the Jews. And the Jews said, don't put that. He's not our king. And Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. What Pilate didn't know what he was doing, he was affirming that Jesus was the king of the Jews, but he was affirming something else as well. Pilate himself was complicit in treason against Caesar if he knew the scriptures. How's that? Because according to Psalm 2, the king of the Jews is the king of the world. So when Pilate said, here is the king of the Jews, he was declaring a truth about Israel, but also about the nations. Because God has said that he will give the king of the Jews, the Davidic king of the Jews, the nations as his heritage, and the ends of the earth as his possession. So when Paul comes along, he says, what I want you to know about the gospel of God is that Jesus Christ is the son of David. What he is saying is that this is the king of the Jews promised by the Old Testament. In fact, this is the king of the world. Whether the world knows it or not, Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's what Paul means when he says, descendant from David according to the flesh. We often think that what Paul is saying there is that Jesus was fully human. I'm not denying the full humanity of Christ, but that's not what Paul is primarily getting at here. He's not primarily saying that he was fully human. He, he accepts that as almost a de facto truth. He's saying, no, this is the king of Israel and the nations, the king of the world. Which leads us to our third assertion about the gospel of God, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. And you see it there in verse 4. So not only was he descended from David according to the flesh, but he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Now this is a tough verse to understand, but what I want you to see is that it's parallel with verse 3. He was descended from David. What's the next word? According to, look at verse 4 now. He was declared to be the Son of God in power. According to. In verse 3, what Paul is getting at is he's saying, look, we know that Jesus is descended from David because he has a, a genealogy. The Jews were excellent at keeping genealogies. We got two of them, one in Matthew, one in Luke. According to the flesh doesn't mean that he was human. It means just take a look at his genealogy. He's a descendant of David. It, this is not symbolic. He's literally the descendant of David. So according to, this is the instrumentation by which Jesus is the very thing that Paul is asserting about him. According to, in verse 4, the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. What does it mean then that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God? Either He is or He isn't, right? We're prone to say, as I already mentioned, that verse 3 is about the humanity of Christ according to the flesh. Therefore, okay, He was declared to be the Son of God. That rings in our ear as what? Divinity. Eternal Son from the Father. Tri trini tri trinity language, right? And so we say verse 3 is about his humanity. Verse 4 is about his divinity. Son of David according to the flesh equals his humanity. Son of God according to the spirit of holiness equals his divinity. But is that really what Paul is saying? To answer this question, we have to answer the question that I asked, which is, what does the word declare mean? Declare is actually not a very good translation. Chorizo is the Greek word. And you, you know I don't often 
go back and force us to go through the Greek. But this is one of those times it's really important. Because that word does not mean to declare something to be true. See, this is what we might say if, if that verb really was to declare something. We say, well, he's always been the Son of God, but he was declared to be. There, there was an announcement of something that was always true of him, but now we know it to be true of him. That's, that's how we would exegete this if the verb really was to declare. But horizo means to appoint or to make something. He was in this moment by the Spirit of holiness when he was resurrected from the dead, he was made the Son of God. He was appointed to the position of the Son of God. When? When he was raised from the dead. How? By the Holy Spirit. Now we've got a problem. If verse 4 is about his divinity, what we would then have to conclude is that he perhaps wasn't divine before resurrection. Now we all know that to be heresy. He either is fully divine or he isn't. He doesn't become fully divine at the resurrection. But if the verb is not to declare something that has always been true, but there was a, a, a fundamental shift in the identity of Jesus at the moment of resurrection, where he is made into something different, he is appointed to something that is different from before he was resurrected from the dead, then this verse better not be about his divinity. And it's not. We're not saying that he became divine. We are saying something else. What then does it mean that he was appointed or made the Son of God? See, Paul is still talking about Jesus in his humanity. He's not talking about his divinity. And just so, let's get this out of the way. Jesus is fully divine. How do I know? Verse 3. The gospel of God concerning his son. That's, that's Trinitarian language. That's divine language. He is the divine son of God from all eternity past. And there's other places in the Bible we could go to. But that's not what verse 4 is talking about. It's just that we don't have the ears to hear it. Because we've been so programmed to, to hear son of God through the lens of divinity. But if you're a first century Jew, that's not what the son of God means to you. Not primarily. So Paul is still talking about Christ in his humanity. And what he is identifying is that there was a transition in the identity of Christ from being the seed of David. That is, okay, here is the man who was descended from David who, on whom the hopes of an eternal kingdom rest. Good. But he transitions at his resurrection not just merely being the descendant of David, because David had many descendants. Joseph was a descendant of David. But Joseph was not the son of God in power. What Paul is saying in verse 4 is Jesus transitioned from being the seed of David to being the Davidic king in power. The resurrection of Jesus was his resurrection day or his coronation day. This is when Jesus was crowned king. So you want to know at what point did Jesus become the king that fulfilled all of the Old Testament anticipation, all of the Old Testament promises? It happened. It was appointed to him. It was made so forever and ever at the very moment of his resurrection from the dead. When he was raised from the dead, he was no longer a seed of David, a descendant of David. He was the Davidic king in power. Now, I want you to go back to uh, Psalm 2. Again, Psalm 2 is this coronation psalm that everyone in Israel understood so plainly. And so what's hard for us to understand becomes very clear if we can just put our minds into their uh, understanding. What rings in their ears is Psalm 2, especially look at verse 7. I will uh, tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, to who? To the Davidic king being crowned king. So first of all, it was David. Then it was Solomon. Then it was Rehoboam and so on and so forth. So whenever this Davidic king was crowned king, the Davidic king would say, up, I want to tell you something. The Lord, by this coronation, has said to me, you are my 
son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. See, when David and Solomon and Rehoboam and all of the kings in the line of David became king over Judah, and for David and Solomon, all Israel, they became in that moment positionally God's son. It's a position of their kingship. Therefore, they are to reign as God's son, as God's representative on earth, to do what Adam failed to do. See, Adam was God's son. Adam was the first king. Adam was to to represent God in the world, to to reign over God's creation with justice and righteousness. So so when the Davidic king uh, took the crown on, what they were finding out is that they were to reign in perfect justice and righteousness without sin. To to be the king of, of Israel, yes, but to be the king, as we find out later in the psalm, of all the nations, and not just all of the nations, but of all of creation. You are God's son. You are to represent God in in creation it's a heavy heavy mantle to put on now you tell me which davidic king succeeded to wear the crown to bear the title son of god did david did solomon Did Rehoboam? Did Uzziah? Hezekiah? Josiah? No. This is a great tragedy of the Old Testament. Every one of the Davidic kings failed, which is why God called in the Assyrians, why God called in the Babylonians. And the Davidic kings failed to do what Psalm 2 called them to do, which is why Paul says, not this time. Not this time. Now we have a son of David who died for the sin of the world and was crowned son of God, that is Davidic king, God's representative in creation to reign over Israel and the nations and all creation in justice and righteousness in power. Not in weakness like David, Solomon, Rehoboam and the rest of them. Not in weakness, not in failure, but in power. Because finally we have a son of David who can do it. A son of David who was without sin, who died for the sin of creation, who died to redeem creation, who can properly represent creation to God and represent God to creation. That's the gospel. The son of God. The Davidic king appointed so in power, not in weakness. By who? By the spirit of holiness the holy spirit has declared and not just declared but made this so you see if jesus had sinned even once he's not raised from the dead because he also will have failed but he didn't fail he lived a perfect life he uniquely in all creation is fit to represent god to wear the crown of David, to reign over all the nations, to be the king of the universe. And that's exactly what Paul says at the beginning of Romans, the gospel of God asserts. Now just so that you don't think that somehow I have added this in when it's not there. I'm hanging a lot on the word horizo, aren't I? Let me just read for you Acts 2, 29 to 36. And I'm not going to exegete these verses, but I want you to see the way Peter speaks about Christ. Brothers, this is the very first Christian sermon after Pentecost. It's on Pentecost. Peter is preaching. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Why did did David die? Because he sinned. Implication, he failed. 
to fulfill Psalm 2. He failed to be the Son of God, to reign in justice and righteousness over Israel, the nations, and all creation. So he died, and he was buried. His tomb is here. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your foot." stool now major point there much more to say but all all peter is saying is david knew that he had failed and so he looked to one of his descendants and called one of his descendants his lord he said one greater than me is coming that's psalm 110 now look at verse 36 let all the house of israel therefore know for certain that god has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. How? Resurrection from the dead. Jesus, God made the eternal Son of God to be Lord and Christ. Christ means Messiah. By, by this point, Messiah means Davidic King. God made His own eternal divine Son to be the Davidic King, which is the Christ, the Messiah. Why? Because every other descendant of David failed, so God had to come and do it himself. God himself became a son of David so that God's son could become the Christ, the son of God. That latter title not being about his divinity, but about the mission and the ministry given to David and his descendants to be a holy, righteous king to reign in perfect sinlessness over all creation. There are then two ways to read verse 4, and both of these ways have identical meaning. He, Jesus was made to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, or it means exactly the same thing if we said he was made to be the Davidic king in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus was made to be the promised Davidic king who would sit on the throne of David over an eternal kingdom forever. Do you see how much of the gospel, according to Paul, is wrapped up in this royal motif, this idea of kingdom, kingship, reign, rule? But we, in the West, when we think of, of the gospel, we very rarely ever even think of such things. We think of a philosophical, spiritual transaction where we give our sins to Christ, Christ gives his righteousness to us. That transaction is real, it's true and important, but that transaction is subservient to the gospel, which is that Jesus Christ is the Davidic king. What, and, and I alluded to this already, but let me make it plain. Because if the Davidic king reigns in justice and righteousness and our sin isn't dealt with, then the rod of iron crushes us and condemns us. So the only way to populate this kingdom is if the king dies for the sins of the subjects of the kingdom. So more foundational than this justification which we're going to get into is the promise of a perfect sinless kingdom in which God himself the son of David will reign and who is this king of glory it's the one that the Holy Spirit the spirit of holiness raised from the dead to validate and to prove that that's the Davidic king that's the son of God not in weakness but in power in power, what does that mean? Sinless perfection. Therefore, he alone has the right to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We're going to have to get to the obedience of faith 
next week. But to recap so far what we've accomplished today. The gospel of God is the fulfillment of all Old Testament promises. That if you want to understand the gospel, you, you, you need to start reading the Old Testament. Uh, your, your understanding of the gospel, as I hope we've shown here just with uh, 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2, you just won't have the categories in your brain for understanding the gospel unless you allow the Old Testament to create those categories. The Old Testament creates the categories. Christ fills those categories. That's why Jesus says, I haven't come to do away with the law or the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. That is, he's to fulfill up the categories of theological thought and promise that the Old Testament creates. The New Testament doesn't create any new boxes for us to understand reality. It just fills those boxes, and the fullness of those boxes is Christ himself. So that's the first thing we need to understand. Everything we need for understanding the gospel is in the Old Testament. Secondly, the gospel of God is about God's Son, the eternal Son of God, who is fully God, but also became a man. A descendant of David, just like Joseph, his father, adopted father. That's a whole other sermon. Jesus' Davidic credentials come to him by adoption, not through Mary, but by Joseph. High view of adoption in the scriptures. Uh, but he is the legal descendant of David. Okay? And he is declared to be the son of God. That is the Davidic king according to Psalm 2. The king of Israel, the king of the nations, the king of all creation. When and how? When the spirit of God raised him from the dead. It's the resurrection of Christ that validates everything about who Jesus is. God would not raise up an imperfect son to reign as king, but Jesus is perfect without sin. And so the nations belong to him, and so do we. If we give our sin to Christ, he will pay it and say, come into my kingdom. That's the gospel. Do you know it? Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you. I thank you for the gospel. I pray that you would help us uh, in our Western evangelical thinking to remember that most fundamentally the gospel is about the kingship of Christ. He is the king of the Jews. And as the king of the Jews, he's the king of the world. And not just the world, but all of creation. And so we humbly bow to worship our God and King. In his name we pray. Amen.